Well, I think it's really important for leaders to recognize that they're only in their role for a short period of time, relatively speaking, and so that the real job of a leader is to develop the next generation of leaders. And that's like the most important part of my role, and I hope other leaders will understand that. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. One of America's few health system CEOs, Madeline Bell leads Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the nation's first hospital devoted exclusively to the care of children. She's one of the 13% of female CEOs in healthcare, and she's committed to driving that number upward, saying, if we want the face of leadership to change, women have to make it happen. This is Tectonics. I'm David Chaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to help its clients grow and prosper. So, Lisa. Hey, David. Um, I'm excited to have Madeline on the show. I really, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this pediatric area, and I'm always disappointed by how my uh, venture capital uh, brethren uh, tend not to be excited about it like me. I don't know. Have you yeah, seen that? Talk about that? Well, you know, um, I was happy recently to see that a former Tectonics guest, um, uh, Sam Blackman, as you probably yeah. saw, uh, and Julie uh, Grant, uh, raise money for a, a, an effort focused specifically on uh, pediatric oncology. Yeah, um, more general, it sounds like it's um, you know I know it can be a re- it can be really uh, problematic. Yeah, I've seen a couple funds try and and not really get very far. And I, I you know I think the refrain is always that the market is too small, which is kind of funny since everybody is a child at some point. Uh, so like one hundred percent of humans is the market, but um, hopefully that's changing. And I know that that. Um, Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania CHOP, as we'll call it throughout the, the, the podcast, is really um, contributing to the innovation in that area. For so sure. I look forward to hearing to about that topic. it. Yeah. Madeline Bell is one of those people who decides what they want and does what it takes to make it happen. She grew up wanting to be a nurse, wanting to work with children, and ultimately deciding she wanted to lead. She's achieved all of these three things and so much more. We're so lucky to have Madeline on the show today. Welcome. It is great to have you here. So nice to be here. Great. Um, thanks for joining us on this Sunday morning. I know you have your own podcast, Breaking Through with Madeline Bell. What is that show about? Well, it's really highlighting um, breakthroughs in the area of pediatric health. Um, as you sort of started at the at the top of this discussion, um, you know, there's not a lot of focus on on breakthroughs that you know change the healthcare for children or healthcare outlook for children. So it's really featuring the scientists that are, are dedicating their careers to those breakthroughs. Um, and I think one of the other things that's so interesting is I've got, gotten very interested in people's career paths, and particularly women, how did they become scientists? So it's, uh, it's been a sort of a, an offshoot of my discussions in, the, in that podcast. That's awesome. You yourself have um, done a lot of work at CHOP on innovation and developing new ideas and, to, and getting them translated all the way through, Spark Therapeutics being the most recent big success there. Uh, what do you think is the greatest medical breakthrough of, in children's medicine of the last decade or so? Oh, absolutely, gene therapy. Mm. Um, and, and, and when you think about it, it's not just for children, but it's for, you know, lifetime. So when I was a nurse, I used to take care of 
you know, people with children with um, cystic fibrosis or hemophilia, sickle cell, and I wouldn't see them become, you know, adults. They, mm -hmm. they just wouldn't live out of adolescence. And to see, um, you know, the breakthroughs in gene therapy really interrupting that bad gene with a good gene and giving them their lifetime back. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, it's been, I think we're just at the very beginning of gene therapy and, you know, the whole field of genomics. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it is amazing what's going on in that area for sure. On that topic, how do you personally, how do you balance wanting to pursue sort of ultra personalized precision medicine gene therapy on the one hand with some of the sort of like broader concerns? You know, there's a lot of tension. Amy Dockers, Marcus has written about it eloquently where she describes how much are we over-focusing on precision medicine and gene therapy to the exclusion of sort of broader population health me uh, measures. How, how do you think about that balance? So I, I really think about it as in, in a way of um, ensuring that I am investing in a variety of different things. So we've created a strategy um, that really looks at uh, lots of different therapeutics for children, diagnostics, um, you know, diagnosing and, and treating and curing diseases. And so it's really trying to have that balanced portfolio. And there may be some areas, particularly at CHOP, where we already have a head start in, in innovation. And so it's sort of doubling down on those investments to make sure we get to the finish line, but at the same time, having a balanced portfolio uh, so that we're not investing, you know, just in one particular area. So Madeline, you, you know, you're CEO of CHOP now, but you started off your career as a nurse. You grew up in an entrepreneurial household where your dad was, you know, founding companies and your mom was in HR. Um, how did you come up with the idea of nursing? You know, I really don't know other than I can only tell a story that I, my mom was like really squeamish. And I have a, my a younger brother and younger sister, my brother was super um, accident prone. And whenever he would like fall off of something and be bleeding, my mom would really fall apart and would call for me and I would be the person who <laughs> kind of picked the glass out of his hand or, or whatever. And I realized that I was really calm and good in emergency situations and not at all squeamish. And so it, it was, that's the only thing I can point to, but it was something I just want, had wanted to do from a pretty young age. That's so interesting. Your first job, I think, related to this was at a nursing home at, uh, when you were a teenager, right? That must yeah. have been pretty intense for a young woman uh, wow. to be in that environment. It was. I wanted to be a nurse so badly that I had a neighbor who worked there, and she was like, well, you're 15 years old. It's kind of an intense place. And I said, no, I, I want to do that. And I worked on the the unit where the dementia at that time it was called the dementia unit. Um, now they're more called the memory care unit. And um, I really liked working with um, those, th that population. And I did that for three years and learned a lot. And I think I grew up a lot. How do you, you know, if you look around today, what's happening, God for, you know, it's just awful with COVID and, and, um, uh, and, and the nursing homes being really ground zero for a lot of the, you know, the big cluster of infections. What do you think about that? I mean, do you think that that's the end of this type of, of care or, or facility, or do you think we'll figure out how to manage that better? Well, I think we have to figure out how to manage it better. I mean, there are our most vulnerable people, and 
you know, unfortunately, it's a bigger picture, like a lot of things, <laughs> a bigger picture societal change where people don't, you know, aren't as apt to care for uh, their family members because maybe they, you know, both family, both parents work or both, um, you know, the children work and, you know, it's just society is not built to continue to care for elderly in the home. And so um, that's a really unfortunate situation. So I, I don't think we have many choices, but to figure out how to really protect that vulnerable population. So after you finished your uh, work there at the nursing home, you decided you wanted to, to stay in the field, but invest your energy in children, uh, where there was, I think you put it, more hope uh, of a good outcome. Um, you went to nursing school at Villanova. Your first nursing job full-time was at CHOP, I believe. It was around in the 1980s, early 1980s, right? Yeah, I, I graduated in 83, walked into the doors of this place, you know, as a new nurse, was super, super enthusiastic and excited, never thinking that, you know, many years later I would be the CEO and it would be a much, much bigger place with much bigger impact. Um, I did leave for a little while, but, you know, I tell one of the things that I, I think is really important in my career is developing leaders and the future leaders. And um, I always say to them, look, I was a staff nurse. If somebody had stopped me and said, this is going to be your future, I would have told them they were completely crazy. There's no way this would ever happen, that you have the wrong person. So I use that as a way to say to people, think big, open your mind, um, and don't you know, don't limit your thinking. And, you know, I walked in the door of a, of a place that was a single building now with, you know, over 50 locations and with international impact. Mm -hmm. What did you think of this CHOP CEO when you were a, a staff nurse? What was your perception ah, of that great person? Question. Um, I thought I was a, like a guy in a gray pinstripe suit that just sat behind a desk and signed things <laughs> and was like super really distant, not connected, and, and really not somebody that was visible. So when I became CEO, I said, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be that person that's behind the desk. You know, I'm in my corner office, I have my own refrigerator, and I have, you know, all the comforts of home, I could stay there all day, and, and just be happy. Um, and I wanted to be that person that periodically you know, really gets out on the front lines and is seeing and connecting and most most importantly, listening to people, which is really the opposite of like the guy in the gray pinstripe suit that sits behind the desk and signs things. Do you have a gray <laughs> pinstripe suit, Madeline? <laughs> I actually do not. <laughs> um, so just to kind of uh, ask you a little bit about this sort of your description of going from like you're saying nursing home patients to um, to children and you know the opportunity and the you know the, the wonderful part is all of the hope but the flip of that is sometimes that some of the sadness can be almost uniquely profound how did you find it dealing with that aspect of it during your training as a nurse yeah i i you know people ask me that all the time because i've cared for children dying children and um watched children died held children as they've died had to talk to their parents about this and um while it's devastating and really difficult and became more difficult for me when I became a parent, yeah. um, it's still, you know, I have letters for, from parents who say, my child died, which is the worst thing I could ever imagine, but you helped to make that better. 
or Children's Hospital of Philadelphia helped to make that better. And when I feel, when I hear from families who feel that way, I'm like, wow, they experienced the most tragic loss that anybody could imagine, and they're grateful. So I, I think that's just incredibly rewarding to, to be part of that. I want to tear it up over here. I know. Um, I know. We're so Yeah. I know you left uh, nursing for a while to, to get an MBA in organizational dynamics, left the care delivery side. What was the, the impetus for that? And what was the lesson you took away from that that's been most valuable to you later in your career? Yeah, I, I started to ask myself big questions. Like, why does that guy in the gray pinstripe suit want me to do this? Or why are they, you know, asking us to do mandatory overtime once a pay period? You know, like all the things that were, you know, people were talking about. And I thought, well, well, why don't I find out and see if I can do something different? You know, make it better for everyone. And so that was sort of the initial impetus. Um, of going to graduate school and um, changing my career and, and, and uh, pivoting it to planning and new business development, actually, which was a pretty big pivot, but also developing a women and children's service line. So when I went, when I left CHOP, those are the things that I did. And I still actually was a home care nurse on the side, oh, wow. um, which was really amazing because all those years that I was helping parents to get ready to take care of their child, sometimes for the first time in their child's life. Their child never had been home and they never knew you know, how to take care of their child. And that was my job when I was in the hospital. And then to go into their home and be there as they're, you know, and packing all their medical supplies and um, helping to figure out how to adapt their home to care for this child at home. It was a really great sort of continuum to see and really enlightening. So actually on the side, when I was working in on the business side, I would do that on the weekends and it was, wow. it was really, really helpful for me. Wow. Can you, is there a patient you most remember from that experience? Yeah, it was a little girl who was living in poverty, who was technology dependent. And I remember thinking to myself, it was a really, um, really, really scary neighborhood, frankly, for uh, a woman and her, I guess, you know, as maybe like 29 years old, and um, she was being cared for in the living room, and the family um, didn't have a lot of, um, you know, the kitchen was, didn't have running water, so I had to use the, the bathtub in the bathroom upstairs. I mean, there was just a lot of things that they had to overcome and adapt to care for her, but they did a great job. She didn't get infections, she was well cared for, there were lots of people living in the house, three generations of people. And I was just there, you know, among them, taking care of her on Friday nights. And mm. um, it, was, it was so eye-opening to me to think that um, they did so much with few resources and took better care of their child than some people who are very, very well equipped. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. Let me ask you another question. One of the, um, you know, there, if... Two of the um, classic dynamics people talk about in hospitals, right, are between uh, physicians and then their MBA overlords, um, and then um, also the tension that can exist between um, physicians and nurses. It seems to me that coming in eventually as CEO, you really ha must have had to deal with both of those um, tensions uh, head on. I'm curious what your experience dealing with physicians um, has been like. 
Yeah, I'm, it's, it's interesting. I would say um, I'll answer from my own perspective as the CEO who's a nurse and then sort of at the bedside. So let me start at the bedside where I've really focused on an important dyad partnership between nurses and physicians. You know, that, that neither one can do their job without the other. And that, you know, the nurse is at the bedside 24 seven and the physician is, the nurse can't, you know, really do certain things without a physician order. So they're really codependent partners. And, um, and we've really created this dyad of leadership and at the bedside, but also, you know, at many different levels. And I, I got a letter from a, a mother who said she came to our hospital and from another hospital and she knew she was in a different place about the dynamics when we have something called bedside rounds where the doctors and nurses come to the bedside with the medical students and the residents sure. and they talk about the child's condition and the nurse came to the bedside rounds late and um the nurse said oh can you please to the physician could you please start at the beginning you know i'm i'm late and the mother said she cringed and was waiting for the nurse to be dressed down by the physician and he said oh sure of course and start at the beginning. And so yeah. in her letter to me, she said, I knew I was in a different place when I saw that level of teamwork and partnership. Um, you know, when I became CEO, one of the things that actually bothered me is that a number of people said to me, well, how you're a nurse, how are the doctors going to listen to you as the CEO? And, you know, at the end of the day, um, maybe, maybe they thought it, um, you know, when they, the physicians thought about this, but, but when you are their boss, you're the person who signs their paycheck, you're the person, you know, who gives them their annual review, who can hire and fire um, them or their team. And I think they're, you have to command that respect and you have to own it. And, you know, I haven't had an issue with the medical staff ever saying, you know, you can't tell me what to do, or you're a nurse, or, you know, part of me sort of thought, well, maybe that's code for, is a woman going to be able to be the CEO managing a lot of men, which I do manage a lot of men. So, is it, but if, I want to start one quick follow-up on that. If you're running um, CHOP, are actually for, for the physicians at CHOP, what is the gender ratio, since you mentioned that? I would think that it would be at least equally men and women. Yeah, for the for the for the newer younger generation, absolutely. In fact, in our resident class, we're always looking for men um, pediatricians because in in pediatrics it's skewed a little more. Um, when I was a nurse, there might have been a couple of you know women in a class, right. um, and it's changed completely. Yeah. Uh, but the leadership level, it's still largely men. Um, huh. So the chair, the division chiefs, and we're doing a better job one person at a time. Um, you know, there's this whole idea of having term limits in academic medicine so that it gives the opportunity for um, younger people to, to move in and to provide diversity. And I always think of our physicians leaders as more Supreme Court justices, you know, like being in their role until they die. Um, <laughs> And I'm sure they'd be upset to hear me say that, but it is it is how I refer to it. But if you can, you know, have term limits as you know in those academic leadership positions, you know, the math works that you could get people of color and women in in 
in leadership and academic medicine, but it's still do, not where it needs to be. Do you look for other types of diversity as well in terms of viewpoint diversity, do you think? Yeah, I actually think um, not only viewpoint diversity, but also style diversity. And, you know, hmm. so there, on my team, I'm try, I try to balance out, um, in addition to, um, you know, race, racial and ethnic diversity, gender d diversity, style diversity, because if huh. everyone on the team is analytic, um, and, and Lisa knows some of the people on my team, um, it, that is not going to work. And if everyone is sort of a gut thinker right. and manager, yeah, that's, that's so not interesting. going to work either. So knowing each other's styles, respecting so, those styles. So Meyer Briggs diversity, is that it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's it makes a much healthier team um, because, you know, you can't just count on the fact that somebody has racial, ethnic, gender diversity to come with a different style. Um, you could have all of that and have everyone, you know, be a certain way in terms how, of how they solve problems or understand problems. Wow. So you were COO, Chief Operating Officer at Chop for eight years, president, I think, TO and president for some number of years before you became CEO. What is the fundamental difference between that job and the CEO job? Yeah, I, you know, I didn't appreciate the difference because I was COO for eight years and I did a lot of what CEOs do, did, I thought. Um, but, you know, first of all, you're, you're the, you're, you know, the first night I went to bed as a CEO, the first thing I thought was like, I don't have a boss. You know, I have 14 bosses, they're on my board, um, but I have a board that I have to focus on. Um, the buck stops with me, like, you know, there's no one I can consult with in the same way. And, um, you know, it, it certainly is much more, it's a, it's a lonely place, you know, it's, wow. it, and so that's, that, those were the sort of original thoughts, but it's, it's a much more externally facing job. So I have a platform with this title of this organization that's internationally renowned and I have to use that platform to influence public policy and to really be the representative of our brand and um, and to you know spending time with that. And I actually had the same assistant who was my assistant as COO to CEO. And I really had to sit down with her and say, you know, this is actually a different job. And so, you know, when we are getting uh, requests for internally focused meetings, they may seem more important to you because that's what I used to do. But now these externally focused things are more important. And so we had to really pivot together as a team mm -hmm. on how to, you know, uh, be the person who helps manage my calendar and be the person who answers the phone and, you know, runs interference every day, all day. Um, she needed to also pivot her perspective. Wow, that is, is such an interesting viewpoint. I've never heard anybody talk about that before. Is there any mechanism, um, following up on exactly your point, for peer support, like you're saying, you know, for founder, you know, for, for startups, which are much, much smaller, obviously, there's a lot of emphasis on, connect, on founders connecting with other founders um, for, you know, for sort of emotional support, for strategic guidance. And it seems to me, you just described this really interesting situation where you're, you know, there's no real boss and you're trying to figure this out. And it, as you're saying, a CEO can be a lonely experience. You know, do you connect with 
other leaders, whether it, you know, in, in the area or with people. I think about like my clinical mentor, who uh, Ann Klebanski, right, who's now CEO of Mass General Brigham. Um, and I would imagine that there would probably be a lot to talk about there um, yeah. if either of you ever had the time to connect. Um, is there any mechanism for getting some kind of peer group, if that's the right word, you know, to sort of address exactly what you're really eloquently describing? Yeah, I, I mean, I belong to a few different um, peer groups and roundtables. In fact, Anne is in one of my roundtables that I, that I belong to, which is very funny um, that you mentioned her. Um, but you know what I find? It's actually easier to get together with those folks now virtually because before I would have to get on a plane or a train to go yeah. to one of those forums and I would be um, really trying to triage my calendar. Well, do I have three days to go to the West Coast or you know, do I have you yeah. know, a full day to go to New York City or Washington, D.C. with some of these different forums? And now I've the group that you were just talking mentioning um, is meeting every other um, week and my the children's hospital CEO group is is meeting every other week virtually and it's great because I also get to say like you know hey Jeff who's my friend at Seattle children's CEO you know what's that signed ball on your on your shelf you know so I, I've gotten to know some of them a little better because yeah, so I can nice. actually see them that's at their great. houses that's awesome so do you think uh, I know I know we've talked about how a lot of times you go to these CEO um peer group type sessions and you know you're one of a few women there's not very many of you um do you think it's getting better i know you've spent a lot of time supporting women into leadership roles is it getting better staying the same getting worse where are we right now i think it's getting slowly better um you know the group i was just referencing that Anne is in i was the only woman in that group and i kept saying to the organizers like guys come on you got to do better than this. And I kept hearing like, well, we're trying, we're trying, but there aren't very many women CEOs and we only let CEOs into this group. And so I said, well, let me, you know, tap into my network and let's start thinking about being a little more flexible. And I almost, I almost stepped out of the group because I felt like it was super, you know, guy clubby and, you know, they're talking about golf outings, Augusta, or, you know, different things that, like, I... People still do that? That yes, just sounds so. dated. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. Oh. And so um, I hear that at board meetings, too, on other boards that I'm on. But um, it, uh, it's getting better, but it's really slow. You know, it, 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 it's just huh. glacial sometimes. Also, I, I wonder about the difference in sort of empathy of family, you know, issues between men and, and women CEOs, if there is a difference in your point of view. I know you're the mother of seven children, which is like, holy cow. Um, right. Do you think you have a heightened sense of awareness of like the caregiving issues of your employees, especially now during this COVID phase or other issues that are family issues, social issues, or do you think that's a more of a, just a person centric type of thing? Um, you know, I do think I have more understanding. Um, I've, I've been saying to my husband, like, what would we have done if the kids were all home? And we, because, you know, our youngest is 25. And what would we be doing right now if we had to deal with homeschooling all of them? So I've been thinking a lot. And when I, I you know, I go in to sort of visit the troops a couple days a week to the hospital and walk around and talk with people and you know, I'm hearing about the heroics of like how they're managing their children or their elderly parents 
while having a working spouse and showing up at the hospital every day, it's really quite amazing to me. So I think I do have empathy for what it's like to, to balance these things. Yeah, I think this is going to be an important set of issues for people coming back to work, you know, after all this time at home, it's going to be a really profound um, social need. Um, so just to loop back around as we get close to the, our time here, you know, you had an amazing success with Spark Therapeutics at, at CHOP, you know, spinning that company out and, and having it sold for, you know, gazillions of dollars and uh and uh, but more importantly, making a real potential impact on, on kids. What's the great, what's the next great innovative development that we'll see from CHOP? Well, uh, we have a, a medical device um, that uh, is going to be focused on uh, managing uh, prematurity in infants in a very different way. And we haven't done a big splash about it yet, but it, it has the potential to be another game changer. Um, for me, it's, it's pretty exciting to be part of a medical device, which um, is pretty new for us. Well, we've, de we've, we've developed a lot of medical devices in our history since 1855. Like, I could list all of them. Um, but, the, but the last big thing for medical devices was, I think, in 1929, when I have the sketches, actually, of somebody who developed the first isolet, the incubator, you know, that babies go into when they're... Yeah, yeah born premature, um, Dr. Chappell, uh, and he, uh, you know, that's sort of like the last big, big innovation for premature babies. And I sort of think of this as the next big innovation, which is a long time, you know, coming like 70, or I'm sorry, 90 years later. Yeah. Um, so we'll see, um, you know, as you guys know, all of these things are big bets. But for me, it was, it's exciting to be part of a medical device because it's just new and different. So from a, a last section, question standpoint, um, as we wrap up our time here, and it's just been wonderful to talk to you as always. Really great conversation, by the way. So, so interesting. Really compelling. You, you've spent your whole life, you know, in Pennsylvania, working, you know, growing up, you were born there it's pretty unusual for somebody to, these days to, to spend their whole life in one general location. But you also, I know, have a, a deep love of travel and wanderlust, as you call it. What is the place that um, has left the biggest impression on you outside of Pennsylvania, which means you can't say Lincoln Financial Field? I know you're... <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought you were going to ask a cheesesteak question. Where did <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even recognize it, Lisa. What, what, what the heck was that? The uh, Eagles fight song. Oh, my God. How could you not know that? <laughs> oh, God. E. There you go. You got it. Yeah, because they were sitting next to us at Fenway, of all things. We were watching a Phillies Red Sox game a couple of years ago, my wife and I. And then... Yeah. <laughs> Eagle, these Philly fans, like the, the, the Phillies weren't doing very well. It was an interleague game. So then they started doing the, the, the Eagles chant. It was hilarious. E-A-G-L-E-S, um, Where is it that you really wish, um, you know, or really believe uh, is, is your destiny? What location? What's the place? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I um, I really like hiking, and I like to go on hiking vacations. And I missed I missed a hiking vacation with my husband to Cornwall, England. Um, mm. So I love to go to places where I can hike. Um, professionally, I I really love spending time in the Middle East. I go there once or twice a year. It's so different. The culture is different. The food is different. The the climate is different. And um, you know, I think we in sometimes in the United States don't understand, we get certain images about the, the Middle East. And um, I find it to be um, always a very gratifying experience to go there. And um, so I, I, we, we interact a lot and have a lot of patients from the Middle East. So I really like, I, I really like visiting there. And where's the place you, you're dying to go next when you're allowed to escape? Yeah, well, I think I want to go to Cornwall since I missed my March vacation there um, <laughs> and going to hike from one little town to the other and um, stay at some nice, nice old castles. But uh, so I, I because it's it's tropical there, um, there's sort of a tropical ecosystem. So it, it should be really interesting if I ever get there. That's wonderful. Well, I hope you do. And I hope you do Absolutely. soon. Um, I might try to go with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Madeline, uh, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful chat today. Uh, really appreciate your taking the time. Outstanding.